We're going to do a series called, we are doing a series called Selfie. Does anybody not know what a selfie is? Does anybody want to admit that they don't know what a selfie is? All right, so I have a dictionary here. I have a dictionary definition for you here. A selfie is a self-portrait, a photograph, typically taken with a handheld digital camera or a camera phone that is often shared over a social network like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all that other good stuff. What we want you to do over the next month, you have permission to take selfies all month long. So you guys can like camera shot yourself. All right, you know, all month, you can take pictures of the slides, post them on Facebook, Instagram, hashtag Elevate Miami Church. It's actually a form of digital outreach um, because you know, your network sees that and then they get, you know, so they get to see what's going on in your life and get to see the gospel and just people encountering the gospel and all kinds of really cool things like they're going on there. So we want to encourage you to do that. It's one kind of active to participate in it. Take, you know, whatever you want to do off of that, take lots of pictures, post them. Um, but uh, what the series is all about, what the teaching series is all about, is how God builds up in our lives. How God takes us and takes the dreams that he gives us. How God takes the vision that he gives us and, and brings us into this purpose. This is the point. It's four pillars that God builds upon in our life. If you know anything about the Lord, everything he does, he builds. He could have created the earth in a day. Can we, anybody want to debate that? But he didn't. He laid it out over a series of time in order to bring about a purpose. He lays it, everything, and your life is the same way. He builds it upon foundation, and he builds up from a foundation. So this series is going to be about four pillars that, God, that, built, that God's will is built upon in our life, and the foundation upon which God's vision rests. There's a word in the Bible, the word glory. In the, word, in, the Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, this word is kavod. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so when the word glory is used, the word kavod is used. It means shining, illuminating. It means weight, and it means goodness. So if we want God's goodness to be built in our life, and we want God's weight upon our life, and we want God to do something really weighty and significant in our life, that glory must rest upon something. And so God is establishing, and what he is working to do is to establish these pillars in your life so that he can bring more influence, bring more life, bring more power, bring more purpose into your life. And without this partnership with him and allowing him and allowing his spirit to move us into these positions, these visions that he has for us, the dream of God that he has for you, your purpose cannot be actualized. Our dream and our purpose stops at the places that we refuse to allow God to build these pillars in our life. So this series is about that. Anybody want the purposes of God in their life? You wouldn't be here if you didn't want the purposes of God in your life. You're here this morning because you want the purposes of God in your life. So the two most important days in your life are the, first, are the day you were born and the day you discover why. Right? It's an important day when you're born. And when you discover the purpose by which you were born for and what you were born for, that's an incredibly important day. And so we're not going to talk about necessarily vision this morning, but we're going to talk about the foundations upon which vision and purpose are established. Let's define success. All right? What is success? It's a kind of relative definition, but the, script, the success that God creates for us is when we know his purpose. You were created on purpose with a purpose. 
There was a vision, there was a, perp- there was a point of action, there was a reason why you're on the planet. Your heart knows it, in your spirit you know there's some destiny, I'm on this planet to do something, you may not be able to figure it out, but God's success in God's economy is knowing what his purpose is. Success is reaching your maximum potential in relationship to that purpose, and success is helping others reach their purpose. That's what it's all about. So it's all about this is how we grow and how we define and how what God defines success as. The Bible says this, John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The thief being this fallen angel, formerly known as Lucifer, he has come and he has fallen and his purpose is to bring about death, destruction, and to steal. Jesus says, but I've come that you may have life and life to the full. Greek word for life there is zoe. It means God life, life that only comes from God. So Jesus is saying, I've come to give you a life that can only come from God. That can only come to the fullest measure, and it only comes through God. So the question is, is if Jesus has come to give us life to the full, if Jesus has come to give us purpose and destiny and reconnect us to the reason why we are created, are there patterns and are there pathways in the scripture that relate to this? And the answer is, yes, there are. This is how it is. This is one of the ways, this is the way we determine the will of God. This is what happens a lot of times with Christians. We want to know what the will of God is for our life. If you're not a Christian, I can tell you what the will of God is right off the bat. The will of God is that you surrender and submit your heart to Christ. I know that absolutely is a fact. If you don't know Jesus, the will of God for you is that you come to know Christ. That's the first will. The second will of God in the life of the believer is that we, we, God has put in you a desire and a, and a wantingness to know his will. But what we have to do is we have to determine, do I want to know God's will because I want to submit to it? Or do I want to know God's will because I want to be able to make up my mind whether or not I want to do it? So a lot of times people go, well, I don't know what the will of God is for my life. My, always, my question is always, is that because you want to, you want to do the will of God? Or do you, because you want to actually feel like you have a choice in the matter? Because God's will, and God's will and God's purposes for our life are to bring us into this high calling and to bring us into this reason that we're created. And this is how we know the will of God. You want to know the will of God? The Bible tells you how to know the will of God. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, what's the first thing? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. What is it? Submission. Surrender. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Then. Everybody say then. Then. We know God's will? When you do not conform to the pattern of this world, but you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, you'll be able to test and approve God's will, and you'll know what is good and pleasing. You'll know his good and pleasing perfect will. What does this mean? It means that we live in a world. Jesus said you are in the world, but we are not of it. Okay? So what is this world that he's talking about? We live in this world, but we're not of this world. So what does that mean? The world outside of the context of the kingdom. We have the kingdom within this culture. So the culture outside of us and where you all are, we all live in is a system of thought. This is a really foundational thing to understand that when the Bible talks about the world, it's, think, it's talking about a system of thinking. It's talking about a pattern of thinking. And what the Bible is telling us is that we are not to conform or to operate in the same pattern of thinking in the world around us. The world around us does what they want. The world around us, they they make up the rules as they go. It's all about me. It's all about what I can get. It's all about what I want. It's all about what I think is right, what I think is wrong. That's what the culture is. It's about greed. It's about just running over people. It's all about, about a lot of things. And it's a system of thought. And we see it all the way patterned through our society. 
It's not about justice, it's about power. You know, you can see. A lot of our systems of our world have nothing to do with justice. They have everything to do with the preservation of power, right? There's no, equal, there's no equality in justice. We all know that, and if you don't believe that, you know, life will teach you very shortly that the system of this world, although it has illusions of justice, there's really none there, or there's very minimal. It, you, you'll see that it's really about the preservation of power, you know? We have corrupted, we have mortgaged guys that can, you know, and the economy bails them out. Not one of them is brought to justice for doing whatever it is that they did. I don't even know. I don't even care to know. But what we, we do is we, don't under, we understand that there's a system and there's a pattern in this world. And we're not to conform ourselves to that. We're to conform ourselves to the kingdom. What we are as a people is we are a kingdom within a kingdom. We are to draw from the culture and the kingdom of heaven. We are to draw that. We are to be engaged in that. We are to be immersed in that. And we are to take that kingdom and make it known. We're called a peculiar people. We're called ambassadors. Uh, we're, that Jesus calls us as ambassadors. We represent him. What does it mean to be peculiar? Everybody's about greed. We're about generosity. That's peculiar, right? Everybody's about doing their own thing. We're about doing Jesus' thing. That's peculiar, isn't it? Everybody's about taking whatever they want. We're about building into the society. That's, that's a very peculiar thing. And it says, when we do not conform to the pattern of this world, but we're transformed, we have to learn to think differently. The Christian is to think differently. We do not think in the pattern of the world. Einstein said the definition of stupidity is doing the, right th- doing the same thing over and over again and believing you're going to get different results. You know, we operate, we're not to operate in a level of thinking. He also said that if we want to solve the problems of the future, we must raise our thinking above the level of the past. So we have to, we are to be an elevated people. We're to think from heaven to earth. We have access to the mind of Christ. All of these things are important because this is how we know the will of God. The will of God will be revealed to you when you surrender your heart and you present yourself to the Lord. I'm here am I, Lord. And you present yourself to God. And when you're willing to change the way that you think and you're willing to perceive, a lot of times the will of God is blinded to us because we're thinking according to wrong patterns. The biggest blinders we have are between our ears. That's the only old, somebody said the only closed heaven is between the Christian's ears. We have access to the heavenly realm. We have access to all the blessing and all the favor of God. But the limitations relate to us in our thinking. Jesus has a pattern that's different from the one we live in. And one of those patterns is, is that you are part of a kingdom and Jesus calls you a dreamer and a visionary. If you're a believer in Christ, we are a culture and a kingdom of people who are dreamers and visionaries. Acts chapter 2 says this. In the last days, God says, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, they will prophesy. They will speak in my behalf. They will speak in my name. They will speak my knowledge. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour my spirit out upon them in those days and they will prophesy. It is abnormal for the Christian to not be a dreamer. It is abnormal for the Christian to not be a visionary. That's not normal. The normal pattern is that we're dreamers and we're visionaries. You want to dream in a vision? Come on, it's awesome, man. We should want it. We should believe God for it. We should ask the Lord to speak to us dreams and visions. But dreaming the dream of God is easier than building it. Can we agree with that? It's very easy to dream a dream. It's very difficult to build it. Because what happens is, is that when you go to build a dream and you go to engage the dream, something happens. It requires something called risk. And we're born with an aversion to risk. And so when we have to engage, God puts a vision out in front of you in order for you to move towards that vision or begin to even step in those directions, you have to risk something. 
You have to risk everything that you've had. You have to risk everything that you know and everything that you are, and you have to step into a very unfamiliar world. And a lot of times we release our responsibility of that by saying we're waiting on the Lord. If God gives you a vision, he expects you to do something with it. If God gives you a dream, he wants you to do something with it. And even if you don't know what to do with it, we're to ask God, what is it that you want from me? How do you want me to work this out? Where, which direction do you want me to go? Dreaming the dream of God is easier than, bu than building it. But to build the dream of God, it requires a foundation. There has to be a foundation. Every single person in this room, you have a vision. God has a vision for your life. How do you know? Because the Bible tells me so. You were created for good works, which has been foreordained in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians tells us that. Every single one of you were created for something significant. God is in a journey of taking the Christian, calling you out of darkness into light, taking you from a position of survival, and his spirit is working to move you into a position of success, and to take you from success to move you into a position of, of significance. This is the journey of the Holy Spirit in your life to take you out of survival and into success. Success is where you have enough and you have enough to share. That's success. Success is knowing his purpose. Success is reaching your maximum potential in light of your knowing your purpose. Success is helping others to reach your purpose. He wants to move you from survival to success and from success into significance where your life creates an impact and changes the world. Even if that world is your immediate family, even if that world is your neighborhood, even if that world is, is your local city or town, but God wants to, he wants his people to be world changers and to move us into significance. We have a part to play in this process. The plan, let's just say this together. The plans, come on, the plans, yes, and the purposes of God require process. There's a process. James and John wanted to sit at Jesus' right hand. And one on the right, one on the left. Let them to sit at your right hand in the kingdom, their mother asked. Jesus said, that's not mine to give. But can, they drink, can you drink of the cup that I'm offering? That's what Jesus said. Can you drink of the cup? See, the question wasn't they were asking Jesus for more. He has no problem with you asking him for more. But the question he asks you is, is, are you willing to go through the process? That's the question. Are you willing to endure the process that requires changing you, that requires transforming you, that requires shifting everything about you? He will never correct you for wanting more, ever, ever. You want more? He told David, there's always more. He said, I gave you everything, David. I gave you the kingdom. I gave you the empire, anything and everything you wanted. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. So he told him. God's desire and will is to bless you. And not just bless you, but bless you extravagantly in every way. But not for your vanity. Not for your glory. Not so that you just can be the, you know held up high so that you can take what it is that he's entrusted you with, you can bring his kingdom, and you can raise others higher. That's the point. That's the whole point. And those are the people to whom the Lord will entrust the kingdom to. He gives us the kingdom, and we don't know what we're doing, but if we will learn to serve it and learn to apply it and learn to give him glory and lift the lives of others, the more will be given to us. And we have to go through a process. So we're going to look at a guy who was a dreamer. We're going to look at actually one of the first dreamers in the Bible. His name is Joseph. And so what we're going to do this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you down this road. We're going to look at the life of Joseph, and I'm going to lay out for you four things, that, four pillars that God is establishing. And this is a pattern that's throughout the Scripture. Anytime God used somebody significantly, he repeated them through these same four things. He pressed into their life in these same four areas. Okay? 
And so if we want to know what the purposes of God are and we want to see that God does something great, we have to allow the Lord to press into us in these very four areas. And we have to give ourselves to him as he develops us in these four areas. So Joseph, if you don't know anything about Joseph, I'll try to briefly explain to you who Joseph was. Joseph was the son, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So Abraham's grandson had 12 sons, and one of those 12 sons was Joseph. So he is Abraham's great-grandson. Did I get that right? Yes, thank you. I think I did. If not, just see me later. <laughs> Wrong on that, Kevin. But Joseph, Joseph was favored. So this kid was born with all this favor on him. So he was born like magnificent. He was born special. And one of the reasons why he was special was that his father loved his mother. His mother's name was Rachel. And so Jacob loved Rachel. And so Jacob went to Rachel's father and said, I'm going to work. Can you imagine this? You must really love a woman if you're going to work seven years for her. I'm going to work seven years for her. I'm going to go and I'm going to serve you and I'm going to work seven years. And at the end of seven years, you're going to give me Rachel and she's going to be my wife. Right. And so the guy Laban said, yeah, no problem. You can do that. So Jacob worked seven years and he didn't give him Rachel. Give her Rachel. Give him Rachel. He gave her his other daughter, Leah. And apparently Leah wasn't, you know, real pretty or whatever. She had, I don't know what the Bible says something about her. She had funny eyes or something. Maybe she was cross-eyed. Hey, Jacob, what's going on? So... <laughs> And he figured, well, this is about my only chance I get to marry her off, you know, and nobody's going to be wanting this one. And so he gave her, um, yeah, she had something with her eyes, it says. But um, he gave her, uh, so he gave her um, uh, Leah. And then, so Jacob's like, hey, man, I wanted, I, wanted, I wanted Rachel. And so Laban goes, oh, I'll give you Rachel too, but you've got to work another seven years. And so it ended up that Jacob ended up having two wives in this situation. Don't ask me the, the, the theology on that right now because I don't have time to explain that. But nonetheless... It happened, and so Jacob didn't love Leah. He loved Rachel, but the Lord showed favor to Leah because Jacob would not honor her as his wife. And so Leah started becoming a baby-making factory. And this girl was firing out children. Rachel stood by while Leah was just firing out kids. Boom, 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 right? And so Rachel ended up having two children, she, and one of them was Joseph. And so Joseph was the beloved son of his beloved wife. And so when J Rachel had Joseph, Jacob went crazy. He was born special. There was something favor. There was just favor on this kid's life from the time he was born. And his father not only acknowledged it, his father did some own personal, some own personal favoritisms to him too. All the 11 kids had to go out to work. But guess, one guy, guess who got to stay home and drink lattes all day long, okay? Joseph didn't have to work. And so all of his brothers are out there working. Joseph just kind of cruising around, you know, a little Oliver Palmer in his hand. Hey, what are you guys doing? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Hey, you know, this ditch, you're not digging this ditch right. I, I, no, no, seriously, you guys got to go back there and pick up, you know. He's out there giving orders in this beautiful dream coat, right? He's got this coat of many colors, the Bible says, so it's like glitter, so he's got this glittering coat, you know, the sun's hitting it and colors are blinding everywhere. Joseph's coming, you know, just kind of representing the family. And Joseph was not liked by his brothers. One day he had a dream and he goes out to the field and tells his brothers. And when he tells them the dream, they hated him all the more. Sometimes when you tell people your dream, they don't like you. They're like, who do you think you are? What, what you think you're better than me? You think you're better than us? You got a dream? You're going to be somebody special? What, who do you think you are? 
And so he told them his dream, and he said, listen, listen to this dream. He said, we're all out binding sheaves of grain in the field, and suddenly my sheaf, we're all binding, we're all putting everything together, all of a sudden mine rose up higher than all of yours, right? And suddenly my sheaves stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around mine, and they all bowed down. And they're like, what? Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of what he had said. Then he has another dream, and he tells his brothers, listen, I had another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down to me. And his father heard it, and his father's like, what are you, what are you crazy, man? Like, your mom and I are going to bow down to you? Is that what you're trying to say? That we're actually going to bow down before you? And his brothers were jealous, but his father kept the matter in his mind. and kept the matter in his heart. His father kind of meditated on it because he knew God was speaking somewhere in this process. Joseph was favored in his family. He was young and he was gifted, but he had an attitude. Young, gifted, with an attitude. Say, how do you know that? He had 11 brothers that hated him. 11 brothers, and they all hated him. Usually there's a couple in there that don't think you're that bad. You've got to be quite a, a unique person to tick off all 11 of your siblings. They all hated him, right? So he must have been like, yo, no, 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 no. Bring that chicken breast over here, man. No, 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 no. Reuben, no, no, man, Reuben. I get, <laughs> I get the collard greens first, man. What's up, you know? Bring that over here. No, bring that, you know, there must have been something Joseph was doing to project this attitude to where everybody couldn't stand him. That's my point. I don't know how you get 11 siblings to hate you, but Joseph had accomplished that. And so he, they hated him. And so when they had an opportunity, they seized Joseph and they throw him in a pit. This doesn't make sense. They threw him in a pit and then they sold him as a slave. Wait a second. Didn't God give Joseph a dream? Didn't, didn't the Lord just appear to him? Didn't he just have an encounter and God just show him a vision of his future? Didn't he just have that? So why is he thrown into a pit? And why is he being sold as a slave? He's supposed to rule. and He's not supposed to be in this position. And so they sell him as a slave and he is brought to a foreign land. He is brought into a culture that he does not understand and a language that he does not speak. All of his privileges are gone and so is all of his positions. He is put into a position where he had no control over his life. Can anybody witness? Put in a position where they had no control over their life. His life looked like a strikeout in his eyes, but he hadn't even come up to bat yet. God didn't even put the bat in his hand yet. And it appeared by all intents and measures that Joseph had struck out. Struck out. I'm sure everybody was laughing at him. <laughs> Where's the dreamer now? You know, bye-bye, dreamer. See you later. It's a really powerful metaphor in, in, this, in this passage between Jesus and uh, the, the Hebrew. Joseph is a type of Christ. This is a literal story, but it mirrors the life of Christ. Sold by his brothers for 30 pieces of silver. That's what Joseph was sold for. Hidden from his brothers. Revealed in a latter day. You know, the one that they sold as a slave was actually ruler of all. Powerful message, but... There's four gates, four pillars upon which the goodness of God rests. And you can see this template. You can see this pattern in David. You can see it in Daniel. You can see it in Paul. You can see it in Peter. And you can definitely see it in Joseph. This template that God uses, he takes these four things and he moves us into these four areas and begins to deal with us in these four areas. And as we yield ourselves to these four areas, more and more and more of his greatness comes into our life. 
This is what God does for us in the real world. This is what people don't understand. What God does for us spiritually is given to us. What God does for us in our material world or time and space is a process that is accomplished through these areas of submission in our life. You can have somebody who doesn't necessarily have high levels of character and they can operate in spiritual gifts. Why is that? Because they are spiritual gifts. But position and influence and these areas of, of weight are come through us as we yield ourselves to, uh, to these things. These things not only come to us as we yield ourselves to, to them, this is how God inter intervenes into our world and moves us forward, but these areas of our life actually test us to see if we are able to hold the weight of glory that he puts over your life. He wants to put the weight of glory on your life. Whether you're a mother, whether, whether you're a father, whatever area, whatever arena you so desire the weight to be upon you, God's will and his heart for you is to put the weight of his goodness, the weight of significance, the weight of influence on you. It is his will. It is his will that his people be influential. It is his will that his people succeed. It is his will that his people be held up. It is his will. Lights in the darkness, cities on a hill. This is what he says. So clearly, it's his will that we are being brought to these places. But what we cannot, where we, where we fall short, is that we lack the understanding that is necessary in order for these things to take place. These things do not guarantee it, but they definitely increase dramatically the probabilities. Does that make sense to you? And it's not only that, but what we see, my son and I were talking in a car, and he was asking me about the, the teaching. He was asking me what, what I was talking about, and I told him a bunch of stuff about it. And I said, you know, when God puts glory on our life, these areas of our lives are tested. And these areas of our life, they will show us where we're weak, and they will show us where he, he needs to improve, where we need to improve. And then if we want the glory on our life, these are the areas that we must be conscious of and increasingly develop. Some would call them four gates. I see them as pillars because I see the glory of God as something that rests, as something that sets upon. So these are like pillars that hold up the, the glory. And what are they? The first one is dependence. Dependence upon the Lord. This, is, this goes against everything. So this Romans 12 idea of don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The pattern of this world says that we are independent. Anybody know that? We're in the United States of America. We have a declaration of independence. We're independent on every level. And that's good on some levels. Physical maturity requires independence. But spiritual maturity requires codependence. If you want to be spiritually mature, you will not be independent. You will be codependent. You're created to be codependent. Codependency is not a bad word, as long as it relates to Jesus, as long as he's the one you're codependent on. Addiction is not a bad thing, as long as Jesus is the one you're addicted to, and not the substances or the circumstances or the situations. You're created. That's why we are so easily codependent. It's because there's a part of us that was created to be codependent. That's why we're so easily addicted, because there's a part of us that was created to be addicted. It's misguided. Physical maturity requires independence. Spiritual maturity calls, co requires codependence. You say, I don't know if this codependence thing is there. If you look at how Jesus told you to relate to him, I don't know about you, but it screams codependence for me. He tells a story of a guy who's in bed with his kids. So he paints this picture. So the dude's not just in bed. He's in bed, and he's got his kids with him. Anybody here that have small kids, and you realize how long it takes to get your kids in bed, right? That kid does not want to go to bed. 
Anybody know what I'm talking about? They're up, they're down, everything. So he gets the kid in bed. So he paints this picture of us, and he says, I'm going to tell you a story. There's a guy, he's in bed, and his kids are in bed. And there's another guy that comes and knocks on the door and says, hey, I got guests in town. I need you to come down and give me some Wonder Bread. I don't have any food for them. And the guy's upstairs going, go away, man. I'm sleeping. My kids are in bed. And the dude just keeps beating on the door. And he beats on the door until finally the guy that's upstairs in the bedroom comes down, opens the door, and gives the guy what he wants. And you know what Jesus says? This is how you're to relate to me. I, that sounds a little codependent to me, okay? And then he gives this other example. In other words, we're to pursue him and pursue him and pursue him and pursue him and to draw from him and draw from him and draw from him. Whatever it is we need, even if it's at the midnight hour, we are to come to him. That's what he's saying. Then there's a woman who has an unjust judge. She has a case that needs to be heard, and the judge doesn't care about her, doesn't care about her situation, doesn't, give, doesn't care about God, it says, doesn't care about anything. And it says this little woman follows this judge around, and everywhere he goes, he turns around, and there's the little woman going, hear my case, hear my case, hear my case. He's getting a Starbucks. He's walking out. Whoa, there she is again, right? He's at the park with his kids throwing Frisbee around. Boom, there she is again. Every time he turns around, there's this woman harassing him, if you will, following him. Need, I need, I need, I need. And it says he gives her what she wants. And then he says, this is how... I'm paraphrasing, you are to relate to me. Is that codependency or what? You were created to be codependent upon the Lord. You are completely off base if you don't think you need God. I used to have a friend who says, oh, I don't ask the Lord because I know he's busy. Really? That's not what the Bible says. Who told you that? You're, you need him. Every minute of every hour of every day, you need him in every situation. So you're created to be codependent. Spiritual maturity requires codependency. So the greater you want to rise spiritually, the more dependent upon the Lord you must become. This is the pillar. We're going to talk a whole week about this. God uses difficulties to teach us to trust. If you've ever read the book of James, James is as blunt as they come. Do you know anybody that just likes to tell it like it is? I mean, they don't varnish anything. They're just going to tell you like it is. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? Maybe some of you are like that. You're like, well, that's the only way to do it, man. You just tell it like it is. You would love the book of James. Because the book of James tells it like it is. James chapter 1 says, hey, my name is James, and this is who I'm writing to. So that's, that's, that's the first little portion. The very next verse, I think it's verse 3, he's like, count it all joy that you're suffering. He just comes right at you and tells you, it's good that you're suffering. Because your suffering is going to create dependence upon the Lord. It's going to create dependence. It's going to create maturity. It's going to create patience. He just tells you like it is. And what he's telling us here is that God uses difficulties to teach us to trust him. Joseph the dreamer had everything taken from him. Everything that he could depend upon was gone. He, was, he, he didn't know if he was going to live or if he was going to die. He didn't know if the people he was sold to were going to kill him. He didn't know if the person that, the, that bought him was going to kill him. He was property. He had no rights. Nothing. Everything that he could depend on and everything he relied upon in this world was taken from him. Oh, yeah, and God gave him a dream. He lost his coat. He lost his name. He lost his family. He lost his resources. He lost his heritage. He lost his dignity. Slaves in the ancient world were sold naked, chained on a block, and you stood there while they walked around and examined you, and you were completely naked because they wanted to inspect what it was that they were buying. So he, there was no dignity left with Joseph. It was taken from him. 
He neither had influence nor did he have affluence. All of his influence was gone and all of his affluence was gone. Why? The Lord was reducing him. The Lord was distilling him. You can have ore. You can have this big rock of ore, but the only usable material, you can have a pound of ore, but the only usable material is in ounces. In order for you to get usable material out of ore, you have to reduce it down to ounces. Joseph, you, me, in order for the Lord to get down to what it is he wants to do with us, he must reduce us from pounds down to ounces. It's how he works. He sits a refiner of silver. He refines it, burns away the dross, brings up the impurities, takes them away. He purifies you, brings you low that he might lift you up, roots out and pulls down. Then what does he do? He builds and plants. What did he need to do? He needed to deal with Joseph's attitude. That's what he needed to deal with. He lost everything. Second thing he deals with him on is integrity. Your life will never rise above your integrity. Let's just say that together. My life will never rise above my integrity or my character. There we go. No one can make you the person you don't want to be. Do you know that? People run around and go, I need accountability. I need accountability. No, you need to be a person that you are not. You need to want to be the person that you are not. There is no measure of accountability that will make you the person you do not want to be. People running around and checking on you and making sure everything's going good is not going to change you. The only thing, way you can change is by wanting to be someone you are not. Greatness are the, the greatest battles are within. So what does this look like? So we have Joseph who's taken everything. Then God tests his integrity. These are the four areas that God pushes into him on. He presses into him on his dependency. He said, you can't depend on your name. You can't depend on your favor. You can't depend on your affluence. You can't depend on your influence. You can't depend on any of that. But you can depend upon me. The Lord is teaching him that in technicolor. This is what he does in our lives. Some of you have been through intensely painful situations, and you're probably in some right now. And what you learn as you've gone through them and what you're learning as you're in them is that the Lord is with you. He's more committed to your comfort than he is your character. I would say he's not committed to your comfort, but he is committed to your character. I will say that. And that's an absolute fact. So God tests Joseph in his integrity with Potiphar's wife. Joseph grows. He gets, becomes very influential. He begins to manage the whole household of this very wealthy man. He has run of the house. He grows from being a slave, and now he's this chief servant. He's still a slave. And Potiphar's wife comes up to him and says, Lie with me, Joseph. And when it describes Joseph as very handsome and well-built, Egyptians would shave their slaves. They would adorn their slaves because, you know, if I'm running the house, well, I, my, this is my servant, man. My servant's got to look as good as me. You know, they didn't wear rags. And so Joseph's probably running around his little tunic, walking around all day, all glistening with oil and shaved down and, you know, running around and Potiphar's off working all day. And the wife's like, hmm, you're looking good. And so she'd be like, lie with me. And the whole story in Genesis 39 where he would go to her and he'd say, listen, your husband, huh? Your husband has given me charge over the whole house and he's given me everything except you because you're his wife. This is what he says to her. She looks at him and says, lie with me. Right? It says it went on every day. Joseph's in his 20s. Okay, gentlemen, I don't know if you remember what it was like when you're in your 20s. Right? It's like this way mostly your whole life. But when you're in your 20s, it's like raging hormones. Right? The wind is blowing and you're turned on. So any guys in the house, there guys are like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. That might be you. That ain't me. We're here in church, so I'm not, I'm not even going to acknowledge that. You know? Yeah, come on. <laughs> and so he tests Joseph. Joseph looks at that he could have done anything he wanted to do. No one would have known. It even says in, the, in the, one of the Jewish commentaries that it says that when she would talk to him, it's not in the Bible, but it's in a commentary where she would take off her clothes and she would go lie with me. 
And he would go, I can't sin against God. That is in the Bible. And she would throw the, her robe over the head of one of the household gods and say, the gods can't see. So she was very trying to get him to go there, and he would not. He had a choice. Do I honor God or do I indulge myself? It's far away from home. Family's not around. No one's going to know. No one's going to care. What am I going to do? I'm gonna, you know, he had a choice there. And it says he ran out. And he left his robe behind. And so what happens is, is Joseph proves his integrity in that area. But now he's accused of rape. The wife comes forward and says, he raped me. So he's accused of rape. He's charged with rape. He's tried for rape. He's convicted of rape. And he's thrown in jail. All for something he didn't do. And he's in jail. And he's in the hole in the ground for eight years. Eight years. And his integrity was tried. And we're going to talk about that. But God trusts us. And what the Lord is looking for, he is looking for people who can rule themselves. One of the, the fruit of the Spirit, one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, because it's one word, the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The Spirit of God is working in us to get us to become masters of ourselves, to get us to learn how to control ourselves, to submit our hearts and our will. It's never perfect. It's always messy. But what we have to work on this as a direction not just integrity and purity, like sexually, but integrity and purity in our relationships where we say we do what we say. We're honest in our relationship. We're honest in our business transactions. We have integrity. He deals with us with purity, obscurity, and insecurities. This is how God deals with you. You want him to elevate you? Lord, I need more of you. God, I need you to do something in my life. He's going to trust you, test you on your purity. He's going to give you the opportunity to whether you're going to do, he's going to show you, this is what I want you to do or this is what is right, but you're going to have a choice. He will not make the choice for you. He'll show you either through his word, or he'll throw you through divine circumstances, or through his spirit, this is what I want. This is what you're to do. But you'll also have massive temptations to do something different. And the choice in that moment is which way you're going to go. He's going to test you on the purity of the devotion, of the direction of your heart. He's going to test you. He's going to test you on obscurity. It's my favorite. I've experienced this many times in my life. What does this look like? God will take someone less gifted than you and put them over you. Hello? Anybody here? Someone you, some of you, you work for people that you're like, how in the world did this guy get this job? Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, right, right? So you, he, puts you, he tests you with obscurity. Or he gives you this vision and this purpose, and you're on the backside of the desert. It's like, how is this ever going to happen? This, it's obscurity. Somebody said this. I had a friend of mine, he was telling me the story. He said he was talking to me about a friend of his that said to him, you know, they got this boss and they put this guy over me and this guy's like, you know, way beneath me and all this other stuff. And he said, well, you got three, you got three choices. You can get bitter, you can get another job, or you can get humble. He said, which one is the Lord telling you to do? Is he telling you to get bitter? Is he telling you to get another job? Or is he telling you to get humble? What's he telling you? I'm telling you through this story, God put Joseph in positions where people were beneath him and he was obscure. And the people he used to look down upon, he was now at their level. And then he tests you with insecurities. When God gives you a vision and a purpose with your life, he will confront you on your insecurities. Because the vision and the purposes of God require you to do something. And we oftentimes don't do something because we're insecure. And we put up all these excuses, and all the excuses are doing is masking your insecurity. You have to say this together. Cross the chicken line. You will not get step two until you do step one. If he has told you to do something, do that. Because you'll go back to him and go, yeah, okay, Lord, I know you told me to do that, but give me, and then he, you'll be like, he's not talking to me. He's not talking to you because he told you to do step one. That's why he's not talking to you. 
People will not talk to you because you're just like, I'm not going to answer you. I've already told you. Do that. Well, I don't really. Well, then, okay, then you're going to stay right here. I've already told you. This is, you want to go here? You've got to confront this. But I'm insecure. I'm insecure. Absolutely. And he will collide with your insecurities. He will reveal your insecurities. Why? Because he, will, he wants to help you with them. He wants to get you past them. He wants to move you forward. He taught Joseph, this is the third area, the value of others. The one who was served was now being forced to serve. Joseph, who had a house full of servants, had all kinds of people waiting on him hand and foot whenever he wanted, now was serving other people. Is that important? Servitude is one of the highest values in the kingdom of God. Jesus himself, the king of glory, did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve. And the Bible tells us in Philippians, let that attitude be in you. It's high value in the kingdom. Joseph thought he was too good to serve. I don't need to serve. I don't need to help out. But some other people do that. They don't, do you know who I am? You know? <laughs> the one in, in nothing more clarifying, Dwight Moody said this, there is nothing more clarifying than being put in the position of people you once dismissed. People that Joseph turned his nose over, people that people, Joseph walked by, people that, you know, an Egyptian was beneath a Hebrew. They were beneath him. To the Hebrew, you're beneath me. You're a goyim. You're outside of God's purposes. You're outside of God's covenant. You're, not, you're, you're unclean to me. I don't come around you. I don't go in your country. I don't go near you. And God said, I'm going to humble you. I'm going to set you right in the middle of them. The people that you're dismissing, I'm going to put you down at their level. Joseph had to learn that he, didn't, that he needed to value other people. Your favor does not give you a right to dismiss people. The favor that God puts over your life, the blessing that God puts over your life does not give you the right to dismiss other people. It does not give you the right to be spiritually superior. It does not give you the right to be relationally, socially, economically superior. It does not give you that right. We're called to be servants. Whatever status God grants you, you are to be a servant of all. That's what we do. That's how we are. That's why we're peculiar. That's why we're kingdom culture people, right? So he presses into him to show him value. Joseph never valued his brothers, but at the end of his life, he valued his brothers. His, his brothers were all about what his brothers could do for him. And by the time God was done with him, it was about what Joseph could do for them. That's what he'll do for you. If you think life is all about what people can do for you, and you're a Christian, the Lord is going to dramatically shift you. He is going to take you into circumstances again and again and again and again and again. These are all the walls that he's pulling down in us. These are all the paradigms that he's taking apart in us. We think that our relationships are all about us. What can this relationship do for me? What can this person do for me? What can this business contract do for me? It's win-win. Lastly was excellence. He presses into us with our dependency. He presses into us with our integrity. He presses into us in our willingness to serve and our ability to work well with others. Not just serving, but working well with others. Okay? That's really important. We're not just to serve. We're to work well with others. As much as depends upon you, dwell peaceably with all people. And then lastly, he presses into him on excellence. Heaven watches you. Regardless of the status that you hold at your job, your family, your position in society, whatever it is, do you work with excellence? Heaven watches. We shared in first service that, you know, we don't want earthly promotions are great, but you want a heavenly promotion. You don't want just an earthly promotion. If you get an earthly promotion, hey, that's great. But if a man gives you or a woman gives you that promotion, that person can take it away. If God gives you a promotion and it's by divine will and sovereign grace, then only he can take it away. You know what the Bible says? The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. He doesn't change his mind. So when God gives you something, he doesn't take it from you. I don't know if you know that. 
It might come, you, you still have what you have. It might be in a diminished form, but he never fully takes it away, ever. When he promotes you, he's promoted you. When he gifts you, he gifts you. He doesn't take it back. Jesus isn't an Indian giver. I don't know if you know that. He's that good. He's that gracious. He's that kind. So what are we supposed to do? So this is the last thing. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do something of value. Excellence matters. We're expected to recognize the gift that God has given us. Every one of you in this room, you are gifted. You may not know it. Some of you, your gift is like, I know I'm gifted. Okay, well, your journey is humility, okay? But nonetheless, <laughs> you know, you were gifted. You were born with innate gifts, and you were given spiritual gifts. What does the Father expect us to do? Number one, he expects you to discover what you've been given. It's not optional for you to ignore what you've been given. It's not optional for you to find an excuse as to why you do not develop what you've been given. It is not optional to the kingdom of God. If you want verse on that, I'll give you the parable of the talents. Some were given five, some were given three, some was given one. You guys know the story? Anybody here not know the story? I don't have time to explain it to you. But nonetheless, the king gave gifts to his servants. And he told them, take these gifts and go do something with them. Every one of them was expected to recognize the gift that they were given. Every one of them was expected to recognize the honor that was being given to them by their king. We fail to recognize the gift that has been given to us, and we fail to recognize the honor that has been placed over our life. That's the idea. You are called by God to recognize the gift that he's given you, whether it's an innate gift, whether it's a spiritual gift, and you're not just called to recognize it. Okay, I got that. You're called to develop it. You must develop the gift repeatedly. Whatever your gift, your calling is, maybe you're merciful and compassionate and you just do that better than anybody else. Develop that. Get better at it. Get more better at it. Get organized with it. Get structured with it. Turn it into a ministry. Do something with it. Whatever it may be, you are called by God to recognize it and develop it. And you are called by God to use it in his service. The guy that buried, the, the one guy that got the one talent, he buried it in the ground. He didn't recognize what he was given. He had no honor to what he was given, but he was still held accountable for it. God said, you didn't value it. You didn't recognize it. And so the, the story always is like, well, what if I do it and I, and I mess up? And I always tell people there's always more. There's always more. This is who Jesus is. He can give you something, and you can go out there and try to do something with it, and you can completely blow it. And you can go back to him and go, Lord, I tried. I did it all. And he's like, okay, give him more. Because the issue of more is to those who will do something with what they've been given. If we don't do with anything with what we've been given, to whom much is given what? Much is required. And if you do with it what you've been given, even if it does not succeed in your terms, he will always give you more. But the person who will do nothing with what they've been given will not only not get any more, they will have what they have, in this case with this guy with his talents, and it was enhanced to the other person. And so this guy's standing there going, well, because he neither recognized nor honored nor did anything with what he was given. It is the call of God. We are world changers. We are the impactors. We are the atmosphere shifters. We are the people of the living God called into this planet to change the world in our time. And again, that whole changing the world thing is a relative concept. But we're called to make a difference. We're called to learn what we have and develop it and intentionally use it, not for your glory, not to get your name on an 8 by 10 not so you can hand out sign autographs. That's not the point of your giftedness. That's not the point of your calling. The point of your calling is to advance God's glory and to help others reach theirs. And so the pillars that God does to entrust us with, to increase and enhance the vision, to increase and enhance the purposes of God in our life, is dependence upon him. This is the first one he's pressing us in. So he may take everything from you and put you in a position of dependence. 
integrity. He may be pressing you in. He may be showing you a clear path. This is what the Lord wants. And it's like this small echo. I know what God wants. And you may have a screaming voice on the other side. Joseph knew it was wrong to take that man's wife. He knew it. He knew he shouldn't do that. So there's a little small voice going, Joseph, you shouldn't do this. And here's this naked, beautiful woman standing in front of him going, you should do this. Right here, you come on over here and you should do this. So he had everything telling him to do it, and he had one small voice telling him not to do it. And so that's how he presses in with our integrity. He presses in with servitude and teamwork, and then he presses in to do excellence. You say, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody in whatever it is. Then whatever it is you are, you be the best nobody you can possibly be. All I do is mop floors. Man, you, you mop, then you mop floors in artistic fashion. Those floors should sing when you're done with them. Because whatever we do, we're to do unto the Lord. That's how he promotes us. We're to work with excellence, not as men pleasers, the Bible says. We don't do it to please people. Paul said, if I sought to please God, I would no longer be proclaiming the gospel. I would no longer be a servant of God. You can't please people. People are fickle, man. Up one day, down the other. Do this today. Don't do that tomorrow. It's crazy. It's nuts. This is where we win. All right? Did you guys get anything out of this? Yeah? yeah? All right. So the next four weeks, we're going to talk about dependence. We're going to talk about integrity. We're going to talk about service and teamwork. We're going to talk about excellence. So this is going to be selfie. We're going to get a new you. We're going to get an image of a new you. You're going to get a brand new portrait of who you are and what God wants for you. All right? If you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Christ, we're going to close with a prayer. All you have to do is open up your heart and receive Jesus as we pray. He wants to know you. He wants to transform you. He wants to shift everything about you. And so we're just going to pray. And all you got to do is open up your heart and say, I don't understand it. It doesn't matter. Just open up your heart and ask Christ to come. Pray what we pray. You'll understand it as we pray. Let's just pray this out. Say, dear Jesus, I open my heart to you. And I believe that you are the Savior. And I confess that I need a Savior. I ask you to come into my heart forgive me, to heal me, to restore me, to repurpose me. All that I am, I give to you. In all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We bless you. I'm going to bless you one more time. Definitely. We're going to have a hot dog party, so hang out for the hot dog party. So if you're smelling smoke, that, no, that building, that's not the fire of God coming down. That is the hot dogs cooking over there. Um, but we're going to, we'll bless the food. We'll bless you. And uh, we have a prayer team available if you need prayer for anything at all. And we'll just have a good time and just hang out and enjoy the afternoon. Father, we just thank you again for this day. Lord, bless the food. Bless our time together as I bless your people. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Mexican Cantina next week. Latin Cantina. It's in Mexican because I'm, I'm staring at a sombrero. Latin Cantina next week. Bring some food.